You're listening to the Law and Business Podcast, hosted by Anthony Verna. We tackle the difficult questions where business and the law intersect to help you run a smarter business and avoid costly mistakes. Brought to you by Verna Law PC, a full-service law firm focusing on patents, trademarks, copyrights, domain names, and advertising law. For more information, call 914-908-6757 or send an email to anthony at vernalaw.com for more information. Welcome to the Law and Business Podcast. I'm here with Will Jakes, patent agent for Verna Law. How Thanks. You doing? I'm doing very good, Anthony. How are you? Um, well, thank you. Thanks for taking the time out. Oh, I'm always happy to be here with you. We have very engaging, very good conversations. Thanks, Will. Today's engaging conversation is on litigation, the need to litigate, the cost, the benefits of litigating. And I know that this is a scary topic for a lot of people. I've I've had a few conversations with potential clients not that long ago uh, in which the costs did scare them. And so I want to talk about the cost benefit of that. Okay, well, I I guess I should start out by saying that I'm a little bit afraid of this conversation as well, (laughs) Anthony. You know, so so in full disclosure for our listeners, as your patent agent, our listeners should know that I am not an attorney, but a registered patent agent. And so with that said, I am not in any way not obligated, but I cannot represent you in a court of law in a litigation matter. That's my job. That's your job. That's your job. But I am here to do diligence and to kind of help our clients kind of figure out the proper path as they uh, potentially look to take advantage of this road. Let's start on the patent side of life. And I want to talk about damages under all sorts of intellectual property law, because I think that is an important first step. Yes. So damages under the patent statute. Here's exactly what the statute says, just so that everybody can can be as clear as mud as to damages under the patent statute. (laughs) Upon finding for the patent holder, the court shall award the patent holder damages adequate to compensate for the infringement, but in no event less than a reasonable royalty for the use made of the invention by the infringer, together with interest and cost as fixed by the court. When the damages are not found by a jury, the court shall assess them. In either event, the court may increase the damages up to three times the amount found or assessed. So that, like I said, is as clear as mud as to how to calculate that. So we've come up with a couple theories uh, on the patent side of life. One is what we call lost profits. And lost profits basically means the amount of money that the patent owner lost due to the infringement. So the patent owner must prove that the infringement caused those lost profits. But if the patent owner cannot make such a proof, the patent owner is entitled to reasonable royalty damages. But you get one or the other, not both. No, but it's very interesting that you bring this topic up. So we talk about damages and your ability to show what you would be owed in the event that there was an infringer who stole market share, was selling product that you had a patent that protected uh, yourself, your products really, in that market space. I think it's interesting to note that a lot of the clients that we talk to, Anthony, actually don't produce a product. (laughs) That's true. That does happen. Yes, yes. Now, they may own a reasonable 
and maybe I shouldn't use the term reasonable, but they certainly own an asset. It's an intangible asset. It's a patent. And that patent does cover the products and services that are being sold in the marketplace that actually infringe uh, on that patent. So I guess if we were to look at those clients, then it's reasonable royalty. Probably, because under a theory of lost profits, some of the areas that a court would have to look at are lost sales. So if you're starting at a zero point, (laughs) right, it's impossible to lose sales. So you can't recover under lost sales. Your lost profits theory could look at price erosion. Price erosion damages arise where the patent owner was forced to lower its prices. Mm -hmm. So again, if you're at a sale point of zero, you won't have price erosion. Unpatented items. A patent owner may seek lost profit on unpatented items. So if there's a multifunction device and the patent covers one feature, the patent owner may seek lost profits for the entire device as well. Again, if you've got zero uh, sales, you can't get there. Right. There's also what we call the entire market value. And the entire market value is used to determine if a patent owner can recover lost profits where the patent covers only a feature of a multifaceted device. So the patent owner must prove that the patented feature drives demand for the overall device. Yes. When we tend to look at it, again, as assisting counsel with trying to determine what damages are, there are a number of uh, things that engineers like myself uh, take into account. <laughs> and even, But, but, but you you're, know, you're an engineer with an MBA. So yes. Let, let's not forget that, that important valuation point, that business. Absolutely. And not to uh, kind of pat myself on the back. Well, but I'm that's patting a, you on the back. That's so exactly that's... the point we wanted to bring about. <laughs> because what we're trying to do is to say we have a distinguishing feature in a product. And, you know, to the extent that distinguishing feature helped drive the sales of that product is what we're trying to determine in order to get to the damages. What is it that I made or I might have made had it not been for the fact that you were infringing my patent and took that share away from me? It is not as easy a question as what the muddied waters, as you so pointed (laughs) out, may have us uh, to believe. For instance, if I were to say that uh, we're selling brand new uh, Audi TTs, you know, then in the very next year, a patented uh, feature of that Audi TT is the Xenon headlights. Then, again, attributing or, or going back to your comment about lost market, would, did people buy Audi TTs just because it had this particular feature, these Xenon headlights, or were was the manufacturer able to then capture a certain market share or charge a premium? All of these things form or potentially form the basis for what those damages are. And so they must be carefully viewed before one goes out and decides I'm going to bring a case of infringement against a potential party. I think that's actually a very important and thoughtful manner because that leads straight into the question of attorney's fees and the recoverability of attorney's fees in patent infringement. Because... In short, what that's required is the defendant has to be what we call a willful infringer Mm -hmm. or a case would have to be what we call exceptional in patent law. So here are some bullet points to think about in, in order to recover attorney's fees. The defendant would have to rely on opinions of counsel that turned out to be incorrect, presenting unreasonable and meritless defenses. 
selling accused products despite knowing that the products infringe. So there's a knowledge requirement there. Continuing to sell infringing products after the patents were found infringed and not invalid. Mm -hmm. Failing to attempt to design around the patents that are in the suit. Accessing confidential information of the patent owner. <laughs> and by the way, that's a trade secret misappropriation violation right there. And then engaging in discovery related and any other litigation misconduct, which is, of course, then an attorney ethics issue rather than even though it would, would come up in damages here. If any of those bullet points come up in litigation, that would be the exact opening for a plaintiff being able to recover its attorney's fees in litigation. Yeah, yeah, I, I get that. Outside of some of those elements that suggest what might be willful infringement, and so therefore you're entitled to maybe some multiple of damages that would otherwise have been awarded. I want to just put that aside for a second and get to the issue of what is it that your IP, your patent, uh, patent claims, your trademarks, uh, copyrights, what is it that it brought to that product or to that product class that can be attributable to that product in terms of dollars and cents, right? That's, I sure. mean, that's what we're trying to say is, what is it worth, you know, in, in the end of the day? We, at least in the patent world, are able to uh, take a look at past cases, much like if you were trying to sell your home in a particular neighborhood, right. location, your house is a two, you know, of a certain style, mm -hmm. it has a certain number of bedrooms, it has features, it has elements. And there may be differences as we look across the entire population, but there's some common things. And sure. so I, I guess I'm saying that to get to the fact that we use databases and we go places where we can find, quote unquote, the comps sure. to try to help us. And, and there no two patent cases are alike. They, not at they, all. Not at all. Uh, no, or I should say infringement cases are alike. They're never alike. However, we can at least get into the ballpark and have what I find to be more of a hurdle to getting to uh, reasonable damages or putting reasonable damages in front of an infringing party. And that is some agreement that we are at least in the same ballpark. <laughs> Agreed completely. Let's move on to copyright infringement damages. And this is going to sound very similar to what we just said in patent damages. Because an infringer of copyright is liable for the copyright owner's actual damages and any additional profits of the infringer. So actual damages, profits, or something that we call statutory damages. And statutory damages are basically a flat rate provided by the court per infringement. Hmm. And the key with statutory damages is because it can go up to $30,000 under a regular copyright infringement or up to $150,000 for a willful copyright infringement. And so it's a very... I would say it's just flat out whatever number the judge gives. So there's not much of a calculation there under statutory damages. Wow. But again, actual damages and profits are going under the same kinds of calculations that we had discussed before. And then, of course, what comes to maybe something a little different, like, say, again, attorney's fees. Well, we're looking at, again, some kind of extra reason to award attorney's fees in, in copyright law. 
The Supreme Court uh, recently has said that a copyright infringement court should look at things such as a party's litigation misconduct, for instance, <laughs> to see if attorney's fees should be awarded. Because if, if the defense is being you know, badgering, if the defense is being stonewalling, if there's you know, no cooperation between the parties, then that would be an issue. So you're um, saying that there are, you know, I, I understand the statutory uh, uh, damages or, or calculation of what those damages would be, uh, but is there a, a, a comparable comparable <laughs> associated with copyright damages. Are there comps? I mean, can I take a look at, you know, if I were to infringe on something that one would comp as the, the Bowie bonds well, sure. or well, sure. like, you know, I, Jackson I, record collection? Well, can absolutely. I, I, think, I think the music is a very good example mm -hmm. because there are lots and lots of examples of people who had copied music and let others download it from their computers or sold it without you know uh, any kind of authorization and you can look up those damages and you know public record mm -hmm. so that part is pretty easy to find so you can make you know those comparisons the other issue and i, I recently counseled a client on this is in looking at similar parties so in other words is this a defendant that's been through this before mm -hmm. And if the defendant has been through this before, what has the defendant either settled for or had to pay for through a jury? Those are a couple ways of, of handling this. Chances are, in copyright law, you will find some kind of comparison, especially with, with the industry that you're in. So, I mean, it's, it's going to be easy to find these cases. And find that yes, you can easily get to that comparison. Yeah, there are actually uh, service providers in the uh, patent industry that now collect this kind of data, even down to the point where they know venue. They know, uh, say, if this was a case that uh, you know. Uh, kind of was initiated at the PTAB. All of these kind of data records are being handed, yes. you know, to allow one uh, to essentially make a decision. Is this comparable or is it not comparable in terms of damages? Absolutely. Those services are available here. Mm -hmm. One point I would like to make, because I make this point every single time I talk about copyright law, if you do not register your copyright, <laughs> you as a plaintiff are not ever going to get attorney's fees or statutory damages. Yes. So you must make sure you as an owner of a work of art must take that work of art and register the copyright before any infringement ever happens, else you get a lot of damages taken off the table from the very beginning. Yeah, I think it's a point that's almost well worth repeating. There are a number of... Register your copyrights. <laughs> <laughs> that ask me, they go, but don't I already have a trademark? Don't I already have copyright? And I go, it's a matter of semantics and definition as to what you have, but you know, what is it worth outside of registration? Well, very little. Right. And while your work may be copywritten, yes. because it's your idea that is expressed on a medium, classic definition of a copyright is, mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that you have the right to walk into court, because you don't unless you register. Mm -hmm. And you again, if infringement happens before the registration, you will probably lose those statutory damages and attorney's fees. Mm -hmm. So turning to trademark damages, just to hit this, plaintiff would be entitled to actual damages, any profits earned by the uh, defendant that are attributable to the infringement. And of course, just like we said, actual damages, 
profits, defendants' profits. One thing that I do want to say is that sometimes a prevailing plaintiff may recover attorney's fees in what we call exceptional cases, and that is that is the definition in the Lanham Act. But as to what is an exceptional case, the infringement can be characterized as malicious, fraudulent, deliberate, willful. Courts have kind of been shaving down what is an exceptional case in, over time, but I would still say that you do have to be careful in a trademark suit because you may not get those attorney's fees because basically every plaintiff is going into court saying our case is exceptional. And at some point, not every case is exceptional, <laughs> even though we don't really have a good definition of what ex an exceptional case is. So how do we get to those damages? What do, well, what do we do? I, you know, what's, what's the process? I think I'm being infringed. I think someone's out there using you know, my copyright. They're, they're using my material. They're making mm -hmm. music. You know, they're putting my uh, logo on their T-shirts. We've heard it all. But So now you think you, you believe this is happening. You know, how do you get to your damages? Well, I, I would say number one, well, I think you know this as somebody who's an engineer, who has the... Uh, MBA background as well, who has done a lot of IP valuation, I think you need to first start off with a balance sheet of a business. And, and that's, this is where I always take my clients and potential clients first. Mm -hmm. What is your business worth to begin with? Mm -hmm. That's number one. And I also look, again, number two, has this potential defendant been through an intellectual property lawsuit? And if so, what have been the damages at the time? So this way, I've got some kind of ballpark, especially if the defendant is a bigger company. But I also say, look, you know, if you can't really tell me how much your intellectual property is worth, because you don't know what your goodwill is of, of your company, because you've never calculated it, because you've never registered it, whatever the case might be, you know, that's going to be an issue. But if you can calculate maybe your lost profits just to begin with at a certain point like you noticed potential defendant was acting and from that point to now your business has gone down well now you at least begin to see some lost profits in there mm -hmm. and you can track that and then you can say all right now we're talking damages so at least you can make that correlation yeah, yeah, I think that's very similar in the patent world. I mean, when we kind of get started, and I think this is, is it's kind of great to go down this line. I struggle with it, you know, or I should say I contemplate it a lot right. of times because, you know, the value of your patent, uh, maybe the day it's issued or whatever, is worth nothing more, actually, than the price you paid for it, right? Correct. It's, its book value is no more than the effort that it took, including experimentation, you know, your researchers, uh, your patent attorneys, mm -hmm. You know, uh, the folks that allowed you to actually get that patent issued, that cost associated with that is the book value of your patent. Agreed. Right? Now, yes. having said that, what is really the value of your patent? Well, it's worth no more than the amount of dollars that it's able to capture for the product that is being protected by that patent or defended by that patent, which in itself means that you're keeping competition out of your market for that particular item. Right. And look, we all would love to say to our clients, we can get you your attorney's fees. 
Mm-hmm. We would love to sit here and say, yes, we can triple the damages that are awarded. But as you can see, the statutes for intellectual property damages don't always allow that. So you have to look at what your business is worth to start with. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, of course, you need to understand how big the defendant might be as well. <laughs> this is a serious issue because, look, if the defendant is selling millions more units than you are and that potential defendant really is infringing, mm-hmm. well, now you've got a lot of lost profits Absolutely. that you can recover. Absolutely. If the defendant is a tiny defendant mm-hmm. and has sold 10 units, 100 units, is it worth the pain of a lawsuit? Actually, we bring it up in our conversation right now, but I always start with clients and trying to answer the question whether or not it's, it's actually worth it. We talk about what the potential damages are. We talk about what your potential recovery might be. And we're talking now infringement and assertion versus, say, carrot-based licensing, which we can talk about sure. a little bit later on. But when you're talking about infringement, are is the recovery, forget the language for a second, is the recovery of dollars that you're going to put back into the coffers of your company and back into your investors' pockets, is it going to be worth it for you to actually bring the case? Patent litigation is inherently expensive. Yes. In these days, one may have to take on additional hurdles in which you find yourself trying your case at the PTAB as a kind of go-between before you can even get to the courts. And having a case in PTAB in parallel with a patent infringement case in federal district court is a headache that we're, we're not going to go into depth at all here. Mm-hmm. But I have heard the Chief Justice of the, of the PTAB speak back in October. And look, it is quite possible to have two cases on one issue running in parallel here in the United States Absolutely. because of the way the PTAP statute is written. Mm-hmm. And so you're looking at the potential at that point of the PTAB and the federal district court ruling in op- quite possibly ruling in opposite directions mm-hmm. on the validity of a patent yes. at the same time. At the same time. And it has happened. Yes, yes. <laughs> now we take off our technical uh, engineering hat. We take off, to some degree, maybe our legal hat. Not totally. But we certainly need to pull the cap down on our valuation and finance really tight now to be able to say with honesty to ourselves, if it's going to cost me, let's use an example, a, a dollar to run this case, then who's willing to take the risk of something with a failure rate of more than 40% if my return is only $2? Do the math. No finance person would ever suggest that their client take that case. We need to be in the area of 10 to 20 times, maybe more, before we start to take that risk. And so that's why, even though we're counseling you in a legal matter, we still need to understand the numbers and reflect on how the process of going through our legal will have ramifications on how the case may or may not prevail in your favor or not, meaning your pocketbook. Of course. Yeah. I agree completely is that There has to be a balance. And this is something that I just said. Mm -hmm. Every 
piece of litigation is its own business. Absolutely. Just like Absolutely. every movie is its own business. And you need to treat this piece of litigation as a separate business. Mm -hmm. There is going to be a cost to it. Mm -hmm. There is going to be some kind of endpoint, And there's going to have to be some kind of profit made at the end. That also tells us whether you're going to try to litigate the case to the end, mm -hmm. if you're going to try to settle this at some earlier point as well. So I know that we titled this to kind of say, hey, you know, cost-benefit analysis is so varied and so complex. Oh, it is very complex. That yeah. obviously in a podcast episode, we're not going to be able to sit here and give some kind of formula because that doesn't exist. Well, that's, it's, as we said, every case is different and every case turns on the piece of evidence or new news that you discover as you're moving through the process. Right. We may find that even though we've identified an infringer of your intellectual property, it may be more than one infringer. And certainly in cases of patents, that, that tends to happen frequently. Yes. And so do you attempt to file suit against each party at the same time, well, that may not necessarily be the way you want to handle it. You may choose to, you know, go after one party for certain reasons, be it size, mm -hmm. be it uh, ease of case, be it any number of factors, and let that uh, fall hopefully to your positive and then cause a domino effect as you then go seek to license other players in the market now with precedence, making that easier. Or you may decide to go the Goliath route and go swat <laughs> the smallest bee <laughs> and keep working your way up the chain. In the end, it all depends on how much am I gonna spend and what's the potential return and what's the risk right. on obtaining that return. I, I agree with you completely. Just to end this episode at, with a positive thought, if there is a defendant out there or potential defendant that is infringing any of your intellectual property, remember, all forms of intellectual property do get you to lost profits somehow. They do get you to a royalty rate somehow, or they do get you to a fixed rate per infringement somehow. So maybe they're not all going to get you to triple the damages. They aren't all going to always get you to attorney's fees. But if the value of your business plus whatever kind of estimate you can come up with for the defendant, potential defendant sales means that you're going to recover on some kind of you know, multiplier of what you're going to spend. Mm -hmm. It's probably worth it. Probably. probably. Every case is different. Every case is different. But that's the starting point for trying to figure out the cost-benefit analysis. Mm -hmm. And if that doesn't work, then uh, go out and buy a baseball team. <laughs> <laughs> it's an exclusive club you're yeah, trying right, to get yeah. everybody into. It. <laughs> Might be inherently easier. <laughs> well, no, but good discussion. Actually, we we, we generated uh, maybe even more questions than potential answers that maybe the audience was looking for. But we invite you to log on to our website, post your questions. If we can't get back to you immediately, we certainly will. And maybe we'll develop a story around your questions. That sounds fantastic. Our website's vernalaw.com, and you can also call us at 914-908-6757. Thanks very much for listening. We'll do this again soon. Bye, folks. This has been the Law & Business Podcast. Visit vernalaw.com for more episodes. To contact Vernal Law PC, send an email to anthony at vernalaw.com or call 914-358-6401.